0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hello, and good afternoon. I'm Patty James of the Commonwealth Club Health and Medicine Member-Led Forum. It is now my pleasure to introduce Sam Apple. Sam is on the faculty of the MA in Science Writing and MA in Writing Programs at Johns Hopkins, Prior to his arrival at Johns Hopkins, Sam taught creative writing and journalism at the University of Pennsylvania for 10 years. He holds an MA in English and creative writing from the University of Michigan and an MFA in creative nonfiction from Columbia University. He has published short stories, personal essays, satires, journalistic features on a wide range of topics. In recent years, he has primarily written about science and health, and his work has appeared in The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Wired, The, New, the Los Angeles Times, The Financial Times Magazine, and MIT Technology Review, among other publications. And, of course, he is the author of the book Ravenous, which, we are, which you see the title um, in your, on your screen and you're able to order. And that's what we're talking about today. So welcome, Sam.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me on.
1: Of course. It's wonderful to have you. I I loved your book. I, I mean, it reads, as I've said on, on social media, it reads like um, a novel. So I was glued to it. But it's it's all true. I, I don't know. I'm sure you'll talk as we go through about your impetus, you know, how you came up with the idea about writing this book and connecting all these dots. But Anyway, so it is about the uh, Nobel laureate, the biochemist, Otto Warburg, who was a Jewish homosexual living openly with his male partner in Nazi Germany, <laughs> yet Hitler protected him so in the hope that he could cure cancer. So this reads like fiction, but it's true. So there are many parts to discuss, but I'd like to start with um, Otto Warburg's youth uh ex- his family dynamic his um so let's his early life let's start there tell us about his family
0: sure uh so otto warburg's father emil warburg was a very prominent physicist um he was jewish he was a part of the famous warburg uh family that uh is best known as a financial family the the warburg bank uh so otto warburg and his father emil are, are cousins of these other warburgs and at the time, it was unusual for uh, somebody of Jewish descent to rise to a high academic position. So his father really, uh, you know, rises really all the way to the top of the physics world. And Otto grows up in this house that um, is full of the world's greatest physicists, some of the greatest scientists in history. Max Planck was was a regular. Einstein uh, was very close with Emil Warburg. Uh Emil Fischer, one of the, uh, the great chemists. So many of these world-famous personalities who would go on if they hadn't, you know, already uh, to win Nobel Prizes. And, um, you know, Otto Warburg intends to be, you know, a world-changing scientist just like, the, you know, the people he grows up with. It's his natural surroundings. It's what he feels is expected of him. And, um, you know, the, the question in his mind is really not... Is he going to make a world-changing discovery? But in what field it's going to be? Uh, and he does feel a sense of competitiveness with his father, and, and I think wants to outdo him. But which is not easy to do. His father, you know, Einstein loved his father, Emil Warburg, and uh, you know he helped. Emil Warburg helped actually show that some of Einstein's theories were correct. He provided the experimental evidence. So Otto Warburg decides that. Um, you know, he's going to outdo his father and make his name as a great scientist. He's going to do it not in the realm of physics, but in the realm of of biology and in the living world. But um, throughout his life, he he continues to approach biology from the lens of a physicist. He's always interested in energy and how cells use energy. Uh, so, so that's really the background. He he had, you know, somebody described it as almost like a prophet with a religious devotion. That's how he felt about science. He he said he pitied anybody who didn't become a scientist. He couldn't imagine it. Uh, So that's the world he grows up in. And, um, you know, as as we'll talk about more, sure enough, he does make his world changing discovery.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, a little pressure from the family there or not. I have a feeling he just was who he was since he was a little kid. It was just ingrained in him to be a scientist, like you said. So before we move on to his work and his lab and all these other things. I want to talk a little bit about Hitler, uh, because these it's a, it's a main part of the book uh, how these uh, two very different people tie together. So in order to understand that relationship, you need to understand Hitler's childhood. Uh, and and I learned a lot about Hitler that I I didn't know the kind of child he was and and uh, but mostly about his mother. So uh, let's now talk about Hitler's youth, tying it into his mom.
0: Sure. Um, yeah. When, when I started to write this book, I really didn't plan to write a lot about Hitler's life, but uh, the more research I did, the more clear it became that, um, you know, almost from the time they were little Warburg and Hitler were sort of on a collision course that sure enough, you know, they do collide in, in the 1940s as, as we'll talk about. But um both stories are are very much wrapped around cancer and the reason in in large part is that you know cancer had been a relatively rare disease in the early 19th century and then um, Warburg and Hitler are both born in in the 1880s and and by then cancer is becoming more and more common and over the the next decades becomes a really preoccupation of the German people Uh, you know full-fledged cancer panic emerges so this is the environment they both grew up in. And Hitler is, you know, sort of a uh, disgruntled teenager and um, his father dies when he's 13, if I recall correctly. And, um, you know, he wants to be an artist, but, you know, is kind of a, um, you know, hapless figure. Nobody really likes him. And, you know, the only connection he has really in the world is his mother. It's You know, the historians say it's really only human being he was capable of loving. And, um, you know, right at the time when Hitler's trying and failing to become an artist, his mother uh, is diagnosed with breast cancer and, um, you know, he's absolutely shaken. You know, his one sort of friend at the time, you know, says that, you know, he's never seen somebody look so depressed. And, um, you know, one of the extraordinary things, it's actually a Jewish doctor, an Austrian Jewish doctor who is, um, you know, carrying, you know, I, I said Germany before, but I'm, I'm including Austria in that, but an Austrian Jewish doctor who um, is caring for Hitler's mother and, and Hitler is, is actually very grateful and, and seems to have a good relationship with this doctor. Uh, and, you know, they try everything, but his mother is dying of, of breast cancer and, and nothing really can be done. And, and Hitler is just forlorn and, and devastated. The doctor also left a testimony saying he'd never seen like another human being look so depressed. Um and so his mother dies of breast cancer and um, cancer remains threat you know, to the very end of his life, uh, a central focus. He's an extreme hypochondriac, afraid of many diseases, but, but none more so than cancer. Um, you know, the stories is there's just one after another. At one point he stops, Hitler stops everything he's doing and just writes out a will because he's sure he's going to die of cancer. And he had these horrible stomach cramps and, you know, all sorts of conditions, which he always assumed were cancer. And, um, you know, part of the chilling aspect of it is he says multiple different times that one of the reasons he's in such a, a hurry to to do all the horrible things he wants to do is because he's going to die soon of cancer and he's got to, he's got to take care of business before he dies. Um, so uh, the stories are really bizarre. Um, you know, he even had an obsession with, with shellfish, uh, which some historian, you know, this is, somewhat speculative, but some historians think even that, you know, the word in German is is Krebs for crab, and, you know, it's the word for cancer. Some people thought even that was a part of it.
1: Yeah, well, and and, uh, evidently his mother died a long, painful, horrific death that that he witnessed, so, and and that um, will you talked about, um, wasn't that written didn't he stop everything meaning he was about to to launch some big battle and he stopped to do this wasn't it during wartime
0: oh well I think the will itself was at a different period but um yeah if, um you know I can talk about that as well the, I, I know what you're referring to there was this remarkable period in in the 1940s um which you know should, should, I can talk about that now, or that comes a little later in in the progression yeah. of events?
1: Uh, well, yeah. Well, what what do you think? Is it more family? Um, where are you going to go with this, or does it happen? Yeah, well, I'll get
0: to, I think that that comes up a little bit later. Okay, that, okay. we'll progress. do that a
1: little bit later then. Okay, yeah. so so now we understand, you know, a, a little bit more where you know where their early lives. What what are driving these two people?
0: Right. What is
1: their focus? What is their passion? If you will uh, overused word, but in this particular case, I think it's appropriate so um so l- let's talk about his lab how tell us about his lab and you know and not only this amazing lab that he designed i mean that was quite frankly really interesting too, but then how he behaved in 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 that lab, so uh, walk us through the lab. Sure. But it was. Yeah.
0: So, you know, by the 1920s, you know, Warburg has a reputation as a brilliant cell physiologist and biochemist. And uh, in 1931, the Rockefeller Foundation actually says, we're going to build you sort of the lab of your dreams. Uh, So Warburg personally designs the Institute. He wants it to look like a country manor it's kind of an extraordinary thing you have to remember this is after you know not too long after world war one and you have an american foundation building uh an institute for a german uh and you know he assembles a, a small he doesn't really want academics working for him he prefers these technicians who are brilliantly skilled but um you know don't have their own academic interests and uh he has visiting scientists but he has these team of expert technicians who just do whatever he says. And he, he runs it, you know, he'd been in world war one and he runs it, you know, basically like a military operation. They have these meetings where he just commands them what to do and no one says anything. And then they go back to the lab. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's incredible because, you know, it's a, a relatively small operation, but they're, you know, changing the world of biochemistry, one phenomenal discovery after another. And this continues, you know, even into the 1930s after the Nazis come to power and he's under, yeah, incredible pressure.
1: Yeah, and surrounded in this lab, uh, he was a man who liked the finer things in life, you know, the, the art and the furniture and the horses. And, but let's digress just a minute because you just brought, brought up World War I. And to me, th- that part of his Otto Warburg's life almost didn't fit how I was surprised at his service in World War I. Let, tell us about that a, l- a little bit.
0: Sure. So, you know, he he was a, a German patriot and, um, you know, like many German patriots, he he believes, you know, in 1914 that uh, it was a just cause for, for Germany. And um, he, he also was of Jewish descent and though not really out, was was a homosexual, which, you know, he, you know, was about as out as you could be at the time. He lived openly with his partner. Uh, but but I think you know particularly if you if you look at German Jews they were um, in 1914 very patriotic and very anxious to to prove that they were full fledged Germans and committed to the fatherland and and they signed up for the war effort by the tens of thousands and um, Warburg also loved horses and signs up for a cavalry unit which um, you know really. Was sort of an aristocratic unit, and um, you know he he was really drawn to it in a, in a lot of ways, and um, you know he wasn't. Um, I don't think he was a particularly great soldier. There are some stories uh, about him, but uh, I think he served admirably, and he he got a an Iron Cross. Um, but uh, the,
1: he was on the front lines, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, certainly, for part of the war on the Eastern Front. Yeah. But you know, one of the remarkable parts of the story is that you know, by 1917, 1918, you know, anybody who's really paying attention, uh, certainly by 1918, sees that you know it's a disaster for Germany. You know, the deaths are are mounting, and uh, his parents are desperate to get him out of the German army. And it's um, you know, they're sending letters, they're they're talking to like the Ministry of the Interior, saying, "You know, we need him." To come home and do research for German food production and so on, but uh, Warburg stays in the army until Albert Einstein, uh, of all people, writes him a letter and says, uh, "You're too important for science. We need you to come home." And uh, it was Warburg's parents that asked Einstein to write the letter, but uh, Warburg does come home after Einstein asks him to. It's it's interesting. Einstein says, "You're too important for science," and and that really, you know, Warburg was very arrogant, and uh, you know, I think that's he, he, Einstein understood how, how to, uh, convince very by playing to his arrogance. So, so sure enough, he comes home and, you know, it's possible that, um, you know, if he doesn't come home, he, he dies in the war and, you know, his incredible cancer discovery has never happened. So I like to think that Einstein really, you know, in theory, could have played a very important role in this story.
1: Yeah. Okay. So back to the lab now that we did our world war one, which again, was very interesting. Um, so, Talk about, um, was it sea urchins? What what was it? It was a sea creature that he worked with. Uh, yeah, sea, sea urchins. Sea urchins. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and then you might explain his work. So Otto Warburg's in his lab. What was he, what was his goal? What was he searching for? Almost single-mindedly.
0: Sure. Uh, yeah, so his sea urchin research actually you know, starts even before he has his own lab when he's still uh, in training as a medical student and, um, you know, physiologist. But uh, he he's studying, uh, he goes with all these famous European scientists to a special marine station in, in, in Naples, and, and he's studying sea urchin eggs. And, um, you know, a lot of famous scientists at the time are, you know, using sea urchin eggs as an experimental tool and trying to Understand chromosomes, and uh, you know the very foundation of of modern genetics. In a lot of ways, go back to that. But Warburg was there with all these famous scientists uh, at the same time. But he was, you know, I mentioned before, he was the son of a physicist. He's always focused on energy. He wants to understand how a sea urchin egg grows. You know, to grow, you need energy, and uh, so he he devises these really innovative. uh, He comes up with these really innovative devices to sort of measure how much oxygen, uh, is being used and, uh, you know, how much carbon dioxide is given off and so on. And he finds that these sea urchin eggs are taking up a lot of oxygen as they grow. And that's sort of makes, you know, intuitive sense. If you, if you're growing, you need energy. Uh, and so, so that's always in his mind is, you know, trying to understand how, how a cell manages to grow because, you know, he, from the very beginning, he wants to understand cancer. And if you want to understand cancer, you have to understand cell growth. So, you know, the really interesting thing is that when he starts to really turn his full attention to cancer in 1923, he has these sea urchin experiments in the back of his mind. He thinks, okay, the sea urchin egg is is using more oxygen; it's growing. The cancer cell is going to do the same thing. And his really surprising seminal discovery in 1923 is no, the cancer cell is not, in fact, taking up more oxygen. It's actually doing something very strange and surprising. It's, it's fermenting. It's taking up a lot of glucose, but instead of burning it with oxygen, as you would expect, it's actually just breaking it down, turning it into lactic acid and, and spitting it out of the cell. It's it's the same fermentation process that microorganisms do. You know, it gives us beer and wine and cheese and, and, and yogurt. So um, very strange that the cancer cells were doing this. And, you know, really a, a big part of Cancer science for many years is trying to understand why and, and what sets it off. And this, you know, continues to this day as we talk about more.
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, it is it well, and and that we could take some time talking about that. Um, you know, as far as what he discovered. But there there was a there was a couple real aha moments. That was one of them. Now, in the in his the commu- his his scientific community, when he started talking about this. What was the reaction from his fellow scientists when he started talking about what he was working on and his discoveries?
0: Sure. Um, so in, in the early years, I think in you know in the very early years, it was such a new, surprising discovery that cancers behave like you know like yeast growing on grains. You know, it just it took a while to set in, but in, in time, people really did start to accept that this is true. You know, they did the experiments themselves, and every cancer they tested seem to be true you know they tested originally they were looking at at cancers you know in the laboratory or in rats and eventually they they see these same effect in, in human cancers and so people accept that this is experimentally valid that cancer cells eat in a very unusual way take up a lot of glucose and perform fermentation just like microorganisms but what is not accepted and what remains controversial is why they're doing this you know warburg is sure that, you know, if a cell is not using oxygen, there must be, something must be broken. Why would she not use oxygen? He he had an extremely aristocratic worldview and he, he brought this to the cancer cell or to to any cell. He said, you know, oxygen is sort of what a cell is supposed to do, that's the, the proper way and fermentation is like to lower organisms. And, you know, if a cell does this, then it, it, it must be somehow broken in some way. And, and that debate really continues to this day as well as, you know, is there a problem with respiration, the breathing with oxygen, or are cancer cells doing this for another reason? So that debate continues. But in time, you know, the, the, just the fact that cancer cells were doing this was widely accepted and, and considered a very important discovery. And it, you know, of course, leads to all these questions if cancer cells are taking up all this glucose, all this blood sugar, is it possible to block it with some kind of therapy? Is it possible to starve a cancer cell? Uh, so uh, this is really all extremely important science that's being discussed, and then you know, yeah, you know, maybe we'll we'll talk about later after the war. It t- just sort of disappears, which is another strange part of this story, and then is is rediscovered.
1: So um, he he is. Um he's making a name for himself with this lab and he gets the um, attention funded by, by the Rockefeller Institute fund, And then he gets, you know, Hitler's attention. Again, a Jewish man, we're in a war now. Um, Jewish people are a lot of his scientists leave, walk through, walk us through um, the beginning of the war and how, and Warburg's, absolute. I mean, you got to hand it to the man. He was sure nobody was going to touch him. He was just too important. And his basic persona is is part of this. He was harassed. So tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. To me, you know,
0: in a way, that's the most extraordinary part of his story that, you know, 1933 comes around and uh, Warburg has won the Nobel Prize in 1931. He's you know, really at the top of the scientific world. You know, Germany is the leading sort of scientific nation, and he's at the top of German science. He has everything, you know, he could want. His beautiful institute, as we've talked about. He lives with his partner in a a beautiful home a block away. And uh, and then, you know, Hitler comes to power, and then suddenly, you know, everything is in jeopardy. Um, And many of his colleagues uh, leave right away, and Warburg thinks about it. You know, he has the opportunity certainly to leave in, in the early 19, 1933, 34, um, but he decides to stay. And um, there's, you know, many different reasons. Part of it is that he believes that the Nazi phenomenon is gonna be short-lived, um, you know, his cousin Max Warburg said, you just just give Hitler enough rope to hang himself, and, you know, it'll be over in six months and so on. So a lot of people believe this and Warburg, you know he says, "I was here before Hitler. no one's gonna chase me out of here and um the amazing thing is that he is harassed again and again at the in the early thirties. these brown shirts come to his institute, and you know why aren't you sending your researchers to our Nazi marches and stuff? You know why aren't you using the Hitler salute? He refused to do it. Why don't you have the Nazi flag up like other institutes and and He's livid. He chases them out. He screams, um, and you know it's amazing that he gets away with it. Yeah. Um, and and he almost doesn't. But um, you know they um, they tolerated him ultimately because he was such an important scientist. And in the early years, he had all this Rockefeller backing. And you know, in the early thirties, Germany to some extent still cared about its international reputation. So he had some advantages over other scientists. He was only half Jewish. His father was Jewish, his mother wasn't. So after 1935, there were special rules according to whether or not you had one Jewish parent or two Jewish parents. So there was a lot going on, but really nobody should have been more vulnerable. You know, he has not only, you know, Jewish father, but, you know, living with his male partner, you know, he had the Nazis could have gotten rid of him at, you know, at any time. And, um, they, they, they put up with him and, you know, they harass him, but they don't, um, Chase him out of his institute and, and meanwhile you know all all his colleagues you know by the late thirties are, are are gone, and uh it's too late for him to leave you know the things are sort of closing in on him um, and um it really comes to a, a head in an extraordinary way in nineteen forty one where finally you know he's he's literally like the only person of Jewish descent in this Kaiser Wilhelm society who's left now and He's running you know he's got all these Aryans working for him, and he's running it like a dictatorship and it's just too much for for many uh, of the people that disliked him and and a lot of people disliked him even before the Nazis because of his personality, so he you know he he had a lot of enemies and they finally succeeded in evicting him in nineteen forty one and it looks like the beginning of the end for him, you know Germany no longer cares about its international reputation, and he's called to Nazi headquarters. Uh, you know, this Reich Chancellery that that Hitler has built, this really imposing building, and um, they call him in, and it looks like, you know, who knows what's going to happen, and he sits down with Victor Brack, who is, you know, one of the worst Nazis. He's the guy who designed the euthanasia program, who, you know, uh, just also worked on, you know, the, you know, later would uh, help sort of map out the the Nazi killing, uh, machinery. So, you know, just one of the worst Nazis. He sits down with Warburg and, um, he tells him that, um, we're going to let you live as long as you agree to focus on cancer. And, um, you know, it's an extraordinary moment. Well, what makes it even more extraordinary is, but one is that you find out that I discovered in Himmler's sort of daily planner that he has met on that same day to talk about Warburg with Victor Brack. And, that would be interesting in any event, but uh, the day turns out to be June 21st, 1941. This is one of the most important days in, in all of Nazi, and pro- the entire sort of Nazi project. Uh, only hours later at dawn the next morning, they launched Operation Barbarossa, which is, you know, at the time, the biggest military operation in history, the German tanks will hours later be rolling into Soviet territory, you know, risking the entire Nazi project. And meanwhile, you know, on that day, June 21st, just before it happens, they're all busy dealing with Warburg, talking about Warburg's cancer science. And uh, sure enough, and if you look at Goebbels' diary late that night, he and Hitler are staying up and they're they're Talking about how they're going to announce to the German people that they've just invaded the Soviet Union, and in the middle of this, it says in Gail's diary that they stop and talk about cancer science. So It just gives you a sense of of how strange the Nazi worldview is. That even at this critical moment, they're focused on Warburg and cancer science, and you know, it, it makes no sense. I try to explain it in the book, and you know, we can talk yeah. about how that could be, but um, you know, it, it's truly bizarre.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, I thought so too. So, um, th- that was actually fascinating, almost hard to put somewhere in your head, but anyway, that's what happened. Okay. So, um, and now let's, let's continue on. When did he, I might be getting my timelines wrong. He left the lab and he moved um to the US for a while and drove this poor scientist absolutely crazy who was a a very kind soul but was uh, um you know just just didn't know what to do with Warburg tell us when that move happened and how, why it happened and then what happened after that
0: oh sure so you know after this event that i just told you about mm-hmm. um you know Warburg is Told if he focuses on cancer, he'll be protected. So, he he makes it to the end of the war. And amazingly, not only um, you know does he survive, but in, in 1942 uh, bombs start to fall near. Uh, uh, sorry, 1943, I guess bombs start to fall near his institute, and he's uh, he's actually moved uh, to a new institute, which is you know sort of a refurbished mansion, a uh, sea house on a famous. A state in the German countryside. And, um, you know, this is at a time, you know, by the late 40s when um, nobody's allowed to use gasoline for anything but the war effort. They're not allowed to use building materials. They pause what they're doing to build a new institute for Warburg. And, uh, you know, he carries out, um, you know, he gets in trouble again and, and almost, you know, is almost arrested again. But uh, in the end, he survives uh, and, you know, has this extraordinary treatment. So, And then the Soviets, uh, you know, come to power and sort of take over part of Germany and the Americans take over the other part. And Warburg is sort of caught in between, uh, you know, these two worlds and um, doesn't have his institute. The Americans take over his institute after the war and and turn it into a military headquarters. So he has nowhere to go and, and no lab. And for Warburg not to have a lab is you know, it's uh, like Babe Ruth not having a baseball bat or baseball, team, you know, it's like it's, it's his entire existence. And uh, so he's trying to find something to do, a place to go. And, and he ends up uh, managing in the late 40s to get a six month appointment in uh, the University of Illinois with Robert Emerson, a famous photosynthesis researcher. And um, it was hard for him to find a place in part because, you know, when he stayed in Nazi Germany, people thought, well, he must, he must be a Nazi. He must've worked with them. And, you know, in fact, he, he despised the Nazis and hated them, but, um, you know, he it didn't look good that he had stayed the whole time. So, um, he gets this appointment, uh, for six months and, uh, he comes to the university of Illinois and, um, one of my, you know, he brings his, his partner, Jacob Heiss. Uh, one of my favorite details from the book is that, uh, Heiss is, uh, put into a frat house to stay and Warburg comes and sees the frat house and is just horrified. And, you know, he's like the most aristocratic, arrogant human being who's ever lived in (laughs) um, a 19th century German mansion. I just imagine the look of his face walking through the frat house. Um, But, um, you know, he gets involved in this huge debate about photosynthesis. You know, throughout his life, he was always feuding with other scientists about cancer and photosynthesis in particular. Uh, and then he, he proceeds to drive everybody in the laboratory crazy, not, not just with his disputes, but, um, he says it's, it's too warm, you know, he's used to working in these cold German buildings. So he refuses to let him put on the heat in the winter and, you know, everybody is walking around in, in their winter coats and, you know, he's never happy with the equipment or with who is given, you know, assistant is, um. At one point, you know, he literally is driving Emerson crazy. Emerson starts just taking a bus in circles around the town because he doesn't know what to do with himself. And, you know, Emerson was like a, a saint who, uh, uh, you know, it's like one of the nicest human beings who ever lived from everything I've read about him. And, and Warburg really pushes him to the brink. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a book about cancer and Nazis. Uh, there there are not many funny parts in the book, but... That's uh, they, that, 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 that was
1: a nice actor. book a nice story. Yeah.
0: That, that chapter is sort of the, the comic relief. Uh, mm-hmm. If, you know, if you can put up with, with Warbrick's antics. Um, but um, so, you know, the meanwhile, he's alienating more and more people and he's making more and more extreme statements about cancer saying, not only is this thing he discovered, the fermentation important, but it's, it's the only thing that matters. He appears in 1950 before a group of Nobel laureates. And he, and he says, everything else is garbage. All you need to know is that cancer cells eat differently than other cells. They can't use oxygen, so they ferment. And, you know, he literally uses the word garbage for, for everything else. And um, he insists that, um, you know, if if only the cancer world would just pay attention to him, we could solve this disease. And, um, you know, it is incredibly important what he's saying, but uh, the tides of science are, are already sort of changing in you know, the 1950s, we have the discovery of the structure of DNA. There's all these interesting discoveries about cancer and viruses that are taking place in the 60s. And then um, in the 1970s, we have this real breakthrough where cancer, you know, modern molecular biology is born and they start to see that particular mutated genes can cause cancer. And by this point, all, all the Warburg stuff starts to, to fade away. You know, he dies in 1970. And, uh, you know, the stuff that he studied, how cells use energy that was considered old world science that was considered basic biochemistry, you know, sure. You know, these metabolic enzymes are part of, you know, what a cell does, but they don't really matter to cancer. Cancer is a sophisticated disease of genes and, you know, it's not basic biochemistry. So it just gets lost. Uh, it's just amazing how quickly it happens, Uh, partially, you know, because people don't like Warburg, but, uh, you know, more so, I think, just because the new science seems so much more sophisticated. And, um, you know, by, you know, the 1980s, you know, people, some people haven't heard of Warburg, and you have, you know, these famous papers and textbooks coming out that don't mention him. Uh, And even as late as 2006, you have, you know, this seminal textbook uh, that Robert Weinberg puts out that, that doesn't mention Warburg at all. You have you know, even, the, you know, wonderful book, The Emperor of All Maladies, doesn't even mention Warburg, uh, the famous paper, The Hallmarks of Cancer, which talks about sort of the six basic functions of cancer. It comes out in 2000 and it doesn't even mention, you know, this shift to fermentation, which, you know, really is, you know, fundamental to cancer. So it's, it's amazing how, how it got lost. And, um, you know, a lot of what I write about in the last part of my book is how it was rediscovered and why it's so important.
1: Yeah, and that's what I would like to talk about now. So, you know, just for our our members and those who are listening to this, I, I always um, like to give people sort of something to take home. So, so the the story in in your book is is what makes it so interesting. But you tie together a lot of science and great information that people can learn from. So, talk about. Um, um, how it shifted and why we're talking about it again. So I'm sure you'll have to talk uh, about, you know, uh, fructose and glucose and back to metabolism and insulin resistance. So all those things from Warburg, and then it got lost, and and then now, why again now?
0: Sure, sure. So you know, the story really picks up again. You know, Warburg is lost. And then um, in the late 1990s, these molecular biologists, they're focused on cancer in the modern sense um, of looking at mutated genes and how these signals go out from one protein to the next, which cause a cell to, to replicate. You know, that's part of fundamental to what cancer is, is, you know, replication. And so they're tracing these, these genetic pathways and they find that they lead them back to these, you know, they seem to be causing these metabolic enzymes to, to change and to, you know, sort of rev up their activity. And, you know, it seems like, you know, why, why is, why are these old world enzymes a part of this story? It seemed peculiar to them because that was, you know, they literally called them housekeeping enzymes. Like sure. A cell needs energy, but that's an afterthought. The energy just comes in when it needs it, but sure enough, these cancer networks seem to be bringing them back to these, these fundamental metabolic enzymes. So a few sort of forward, you know, a few scientists, you know, rather than ignoring it and thinking of, you know, this is just irrelevant, a a strange mistaken finding, they grow curious, you know, why, why is, why is metabolism being connected to all this? And, And they start to look for the connections between these cancer genes and how cells, you know, take up nutrients. And, you know, it really is, remarkable over, over the next, you know, at first, everybody's skeptical of it, but over the next decade and 15 years, you know, they start to see that these cancer, uh, these signaling networks are actually fundamentally linked to metabolism. And it seems that, um, you know, the most fundamental role of many of these networks is actually controlling metabolism, getting the nutrients into the cell. And it's when the nutrients come into the cell that the proliferation process occurs, you know, the sort of the causal arrow, the direction that people thought uh, the cancer cell, well, uh, I'll step back and say that they thought that um, metabolism was an afterthought, where in fact, it seems like metabolism is driving the process. And it's kind of remarkable, because if you think if if a cell starts to divide and divide, and it doesn't have a way to take up nutrients, and then nutrients aren't sort of integrated into this process it's going to collapse you know one cancer scientist referred to it as a catastrophe for the cell whereas <clears throat> um, if you think about it from the perspective of a single-celled organism I said before that the cancer cell acts a lot like a single-cell organism that just comes into nutrients and grows the nutrients are a fundamental growth signal in themselves you know that's what if you put yeast onto you know bread or grains you know it grows because it has the nutrients it makes as many copies as copies of itself as it can. if it doesn't have the nutrients, it doesn't go into that proliferation mode. so scientists really started to see that there's a fundamental link between metabolism and nutrient uptake and growth and proliferation and they started to rediscover that um, you know what Warburg had found, which is that a cell will shifts to this growth mode. Uh, He thought it was because a cell couldn't use oxygen, but another hypothesis is that a cell shifts to this growth mode, not because it has to, because it can't use oxygen, but because these metabolic enzymes are getting turned on and causing it to overeat glucose, and this overeating is shifting it into this growth mode. Uh, So it's really fundamentally different way to think about cancer. Um, You know, it really hit home for me when I saw this famous cancer scientist, Craig Thompson, who's now the president and CEO of Memorial Sloan Kettering. He did a talk where he just puts up a piece of bread and he shows mold growing over a piece of bread. And he says, okay, this is everybody's first cancer experiment. Everybody's done this. This is what cancer does. Uh, So that's sort of the rediscovery. And then the, the question that I was interested in is, okay, so cells, cancer cells, getting more glucose than they should and they're proliferating well how does that you know you always want to go one right. step how does, how does that happen and what does it have to do with our diets uh, right. you know for some for some cancer scientists they're not interested in a diet they're just interested in okay this is what's happening let's create a drug that can somehow block this and that is extremely important and there are some amazing new drugs that have come out of this return to Warburg. but you know i w- i was interested in naturally of you know well, if a cancer cell is overeating, it, does that in any way affect how, you know, does our eating in any way affect that? Um, awesome. yep. And, and um, you know, what's really interesting to me is that it really all comes together in the late 1990s, um, because at the same time that these cancer scientists are rediscovering that a cancer cell overeats glucose, and that's fundamental to cancer. I mean, so fundamental that if you do a PET scan, it literally just shows you where the... Yeah, you know where in the body cells are overeating glucose and that's where the cancer is but at the same time other scientists epidemiologists that study cancer in populations they're finding that obesity is profoundly linked to cancer uh 13 different cancers have now been linked to obesity and uh, strongly linked others less strongly uh i think it's probably just the tip of the iceberg and um so This is the fundamental question in my mind. Can you connect these two stories? Is there something about this obesity-cancer connection, which, you know, obesity is now overtaking smoking as the fundamental sort of most prominent preventable cause of cancer? And then you have the Warburg story, the cancer cell over eating glucose and multiplying. Are these two stories connected? And that, in a way... Was my big project to see if if there is a connection there, um, because you know I'm I'm a journalist, I'm a science writer, I'm not a scientist, but what I can do or what I can try to do is try to you know connect the dots between these different fields, because scientists from different fields aren't often talking to each other, focused on the same thing. So um, I think and you know and this is what I really discuss a lot in the last chapters of my book. I think these really are part of the same story, and that the um, the fundamental thing that connects them is this hormone insulin and um I don't know if I should pause here do you want me to no, go No
1: no no this this is just where I wanted to be at this point so uh, we are focus on this the rest of the, our time together
0: please, okay. please continue with yeah. this so so the real question is you know if you think about a cancer if you think about a microorganism you know you put the yeast you know in the grains whatever it just eats and eats and makes copies of itself. But when you get into a multicellular organism, it's more complicated because, you know, our cells don't just eat whenever they encounter food. You know, if they did, it would be anarchy. So, again, this, this cancer scientist, Craig Thompson, says you can think about a multicellular organism. It's almost like an agreement between all the cells and, you know, the 70 or whatever trillion cells in your body to eat only when they're told to eat. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a remarkable thing because, you know, all our cells have the ability to take up nutrients, but, but they don't. Uh, and we have this food distribution system, which is regulated by hormones and, you know, first and foremost, the hormone insulin, which sort of tells, you know, which cells t- to take up nutrients and how to store them, how to partition the fuels in our body. So to understand cancer as, you know, this, Fermentation, overeating, and glucose—you have to ask the question of what what makes our cells take up glucose. And and first and foremost, it's this hormone, insulin. So, if a cell is overeating glucose, you you have to ask yourself: um, you know, is is there too much insulin in the environment? Could that be a part of this story? Uh, Could that be driving this? You know, what they call the Warburg effect or the Warburg metabolism. And, and sure enough, there is a, a remarkable body of evidence which suggests that uh, insulin is playing a huge role in human cancers. Insulin is a growth factor. It's a growth hormone that, um, you know, tells cells to eat and, and, and to divide and grow. And they've known, you know, really since for decades that people with elevated insulin have higher levels of cancer. So this has been known for a long time. It also only sort of became clear in the 1990s. And, um A number of fascinating discoveries were made. One, well, first of all, it became increasingly clear that insulin drives obesity and that obesity is linked to cancer. But insulin also activates all these these signaling networks that I talked about before that are changing the way a cell eats. These are what scientists use the word downstream. They're downstream of insulin. Insulin activates them in the same way that a mutation would, that it sort of causes them to rev up and keep going and keep taking up nutrients. Uh, now, insulin is a natural hormone, we all need it, but um, you know, when you have insulin resistance, this condition where insulin is elevated all the time, then you're gonna have 24 hours a day, far more insulin signaling than you ever would. And it's gonna be activating these cancer pathways. And once a mutation arises in this, that's it's called the PI3K-AKT pathway, you can just think of it as a, a growth pathway that responds to insulin. Once a mutation arises, then it's even more sensitive to insulin, and you know, little microscopic cancers that might appear all the time. Instead of dying, you know, instead of being starved by the body or, or just being wiped out by the immune system, insulin keeps them alive. And you see that many different types of cancer have many, many more insulin receptors than other cells. And um, you know, it, it's really striking to the extent that which uh, elevated insulin seems to play a a causal role in all these obesity-linked cancers. And, um, you know, and also possibly, you know, one of the more provocative things in my book is to suggest that, you know, cancer used to be a fairly rare disease in the early 19th century. And maybe that's because, you know, insulin resistance was, you know, fairly non-existent in, in the early 19th century. And you see, sure enough, in lockstep that cancer and diabetes and obesity growing Throughout the late nineteenth and twentieth century, so it's very clear to me that that cancer is tied up into these metabolic diseases of, of obesity and, and insulin and, and diabetes. I don't think that's controversial, and I, and I think insulin is really the piece of the puzzle that sort of makes all the all the data fit. And um, that, of course, you know, there's always like one layer back. If you accept all this, and the, the obvious question is. Well, how does our insulin regulate? You know, how do we end up with fifty times more insulin signaling in the blood? And that, you know, to me, that's that's the real question. And um, you know, all this gets a little bit controversial, but um, I think that you know, sugar first and foremost is you know sort of the most worrisome part of the story because sugar has been shown. When I say sugar, I don't mean glucose. I mean sucrose. I mean uh, this the you white know, yeah yeah so it's uh the sweet white stuff that we add to everything it's one half glucose one half fructose and no molecule that we know of seems to sort of cause this internal metabolic disruption the fat storage around our internal organs which seems to cause the insulin resistance resistance and the elevated insulin so to me that um you know there's a lot of nuance to all this but to me if, if you know if there's one simple takeaway that um it should be that um, insulin seems to be carcinogenic. Elevated insulin, and if you want to keep your insulin low, the first thing you would do is avoid sugar.
1: Yeah, and and refined carbohydrates and and basically um, ultra processed foods. I mean, hamburgers are processed food because it's just beef ground up, but I mean ultra processed food, and a chunk of which uh, the ingredients in ultra processed foods, other than you know. I'm, I'm, the food colorings and all that, but it's, it's, it's back to sugar. And our mutual friend, Dr. Robert Lustig, you know, is on a little bit of a, a mission about um, sugar and removing it from our diets. Well, that's um, our food system has to have a complete rework. Wouldn't it be interesting? Um, I guess just, you mentioned the word fundamentals and I've heard that many times over the years, but um, the Warburg was working on fundamentals the fundamentals of of metabolism and then we got away from that and 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 got to you know sexier things or more in you know the the dial down of the genetics and all these things which is amazing but we but now we're going back to sort of the fundamentals and Warburg could have not guessed our what is in our food system right now otherwise my guess is um you know, he, he might've dialed down into this a little bit, but insulin. So what is it other, we know sugar and ultra processed foods. Um, So what about, and I know you touch on this a little bit and, you know, I'm, I'm a nutritionist, but I'm not a dogmatic with people's eating styles other than I, I hope that people eat most of their meals at home and then they use real food you know, so no matter what their, their diet is, but, um, you talk in, in the book and I know another mutual friend, you know, Gary Taubes is very into keto and, and then you talk about low carbs. So basically how, um, with all these different eating styles and there's no, we all have to make a decision as to what works for us, what works for you might not work for me. So, but talk about eating styles. What are we eating that, um, that we can work through somehow um, other than to remove sugar and processed ultra processed foods for our diet. What about the proteins and the carbs and the fats, how they tie together? I'm sure that you're going to do a little focus on carbohydrates and the type thereof. And one other thing on that mode is, you know, uh, you know, the whole, and I don't mean to be pitching Rob Lustig, but his new book, you know, that is, yeah. uh-huh. the, the, you know, the metabolical is, is feed the liver, excuse me, protect the liver and feed the gut. And that ties all into this too. So start with carbohydrates and bring in protein and healthy fats if need be.
0: Sure. Yeah. I'll just say that, you know, Rob Lustig is, you know, most famous for his, his famous talk on sugar. And I think, uh, you know, deserves an enormous amount of credit for waking everybody up to the, you know, the harms of of too much sugar in our diet. But, um, you know, so, so from my perspective, you know, and I want to specify that I'm really talking about prevention. I'm not talking about cancer treatment when I talk about all this, but uh, you know, from my perspective, uh, I think the science that I've looked at, you know, I spent five years working on this book, and it really points strongly in, in the direction of insulin resistance and elevated insulin being a causal factor in cancer. So to me, you know, we have to think of this elevated insulin insulin as a carcinogen, is something that causes cancer. And if it were some sort of you know, man-made chemical, you know, that was in our food or, or in our pans or whatever we'd be terrified it would be banned there'd be warnings on it but the strange thing is it, it's it's in us it's part of our biology it's just our biology exaggerated you know it's a gross uh, you know hormone that's just uh, exaggerated you know <clears throat> ramped up to levels it should never be so think about that as a carcinogen the carcinogen is, is metabolic dysregulation and any dietary strategy of prevention therefore should be you know lowering you know avoiding that carcinogen so how do you avoid that carcinogen what you do is you eat a diet which you know causes insulin resistance to improve because almost all of us have had it or had it you know one study found that 88 percent of american adults had some signs of it so uh if you want to avoid that you know i just think a sensible strategy is to follow a diet which would lower insulin levels and uh would would be healthy for many different conditions, but as, as an added bonus would probably make uh, you less likely to get cancer. There are no guarantees with cancer. Some cancers are bad luck, but uh, some are, you know, genetically inherited. Um, but, um, you know, so what, so what causes insulin to rise? Uh, dietary fats seem to have, you know, as little effect on insulin as possible, almost no effect. Uh, protein, Causes you know some insulin spike, but uh, not like carbohydrate. Carbohydrate causes the most. Um, but um, you know the if you follow you know if you're metabolically healthy, you may be able to eat a fairly normal diet. Uh, and I think that the best evidence suggests is once sugar is introduced into the diet, that a lot of the metabolic problems have uh, start start to uh, happen. Uh, and once you have those metabolic problems, once you have the insulin resistance. Then getting rid of sugar may not be enough. Then you may have to cut more carbs and focus more on, on healthy fats and protein. So, I think that um, in terms of prevention, in terms of lowering insulin resistance, the the best evidence suggests that uh, a diet that's high in, in fats and proteins and low in carbohydrate is key. You know, some some scientists and doctors point towards more towards protein, some towards fats, but I, I think that the agreement at least. In, you know, in, in, certain circles, uh, is that, you know, the one thing you want to watch out for is too many carbohydrates, sugar first and foremost, but if you already have insulin resistance, then, then probably other carbohydrates as well. I really like the notion that, um, Michael Pollack, uh, uh important cancer doctor in Canada said to me, you know, it's not that people can never eat sugar, but think of it like a condiment, you know, think of it like salt or pepper, you know, something you sprinkle on your foods, but, uh, don't eat a lot of it and certainly don't drink it because drinking sugar, you know, seems to cause the worst metabolic effects of all in terms of quickly hitting your liver and causing this liver fat storage, which is part of the insulin resistance phenomenon.
1: And people need to be very careful. Uh, well, ideally, um, you know, don't eat a whole lot of food with labels, you know, there's no labels on broccoli or roasted chicken or, you know, but you have to be careful with the added sugar. Um, but, uh, that's sugar, but just launch the word carbohydrates. There are carbohydrates in pasta. There are carbohydrates in bread, but then there are different types of carbohydrates. I mean, there are intact carbohydrates, meaning they've never been fractionalized and then put back together. Like whole grain bread is usually, it's all been taken apart and put back together. But wheat berries are, are whole. They're intact. So I think for people, I mean, sugar is a carbohydrate, but I think people hear um, carbohydrates, and you know, and I, I'm I'm not on a keto diet personally, but you know, but they, you know, there's no root vegetables or potatoes or certain things that have some nutrients in them. So there's there's different carbohydrates speak out there, and everybody has a different story. But so, what is your take on on that, or do you have an interest or Research done uh, from your perspective on types of carbohydrates other than avoid sugar.
0: Sure, um, yeah, I mean it's very clear that um, you know more refined carbohydrates, you know, cause a more profound insulin spike and in, in a worse view. I mean Think about fruit. I've said all these awful things about sugar, but but fruit yeah. is full of sugar and fructose. But um, in, in most scientists are comfortable with fruit in the diet, because, um, you know, as you talked about the cell structure and the fiber in the fruit causes the glucose to, um, you know, lot rise less dramatically and you don't get the same metabolic impact. So I, I don't think all, you know, carbohydrates need to be thought of as, you know, bad as you have to, you know, figure out, you know, the, you know, what they call the glycemic effect, uh, you know, how much of a glucose and insulin hit it causes. And, and some people, you know, if you're metabolic, metabolically healthy and you don't have insulin resistance, there aren't many adults in that case in that situation. But if you are, then, you know, I, I don't think you have to worry that much about, you know, we still avoid sugar, but I think you can tolerate a lot of carbohydrates. You know, there are many societies in, in human history that have eaten a lot of carbohydrates and, and been metabolically healthy. It's really only, I think, after the introduction of sugar, first and foremost, that that you start to see a lot of these problems, and um, you know, so once you have these metabolic problems, then I think you want to avoid most, you know, certainly processed carbohydrates. But um, you know, I think each individual, you know, you can get a pretty good sense of what's working for you, just you know, by simple blood tests, you know, looking at uh, you know your body. Are you are you losing weight? Um, so I don't think it has to be one size fits all, but I think a common sense thing is, you know, to to focus on more fat and protein and less carbohydrate because that just keeps insulin lower. And when your insulin's lower, then um, you know, your insulin part of what it does is it traps fat inside your fat cells. And so, when your insulin's lower, um, you know, you, the fat, Gary Taubes uses the analogy uh, of a wallet fat from, you know, the diet comes into the fat cells and it flows back out, you burn it. Uh, but if you have elevated insulin all the time, the fat is getting lopped in and uh, it's just a natural sort of logical response is to keep insulin lower to sort of restore the metabolism of your whole body. And, you know, I'm only talking about cancer, but there's even more evidence for insulin's role and, and other uh, conditions.
1: Well, you know, um, Years ago, I mean, uh, I I did some volunteer work at a breast health center with one of the local hospitals and the women would come in that were in treatment and we would all recommend um, a a very low sugar diet because simplistically was said, sugar is a cancer feeder. Not everybody agreed with that at the time, but I think pretty much everybody agrees with that now. Um, So if if you have... um, you know, again, I know you were working primarily on prevention. So, eat a, a healthy diet if you want to avoid any kind of metabolic disease, of course, and and, and cancer. So, uh, healthy fats. Um, you know, enough omega three fatty acids in relationship to you know, omega sixes, and you know the healthy fats and 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 whatever kind of protein you eat, but the big thing is you recommend uh, limiting the, um, obviously, sugar, sugary drinks particularly, and um, and staying low on the carbohydrate. And if you have cancer, that's probably even more so important. Um, so that's probably a little bit of a, of a summary through this and for those of you who haven't read Sam's book, we just touched on some of these details. We didn't we didn't really talk about Otto's partner all that much and what he did. Oh, the man! Holy cow! What, anyway? So, really interesting and more dialed down into food. But you know, the take home is um, is watch your sugar and know that it's everywhere. And um, and your sugary drinks, your sodas, and you know the fatty liver disease. That's you know non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You know showing up in kids. That's all sugar. So the sugar, metabolically speaking, is a nightmare. Cancer speaking, it is as well. Um, Somebody has a question. We already talked about fiber uh, mitigate the glucose rise in fruit. We did talk about that. Insulin is is insulin the culprit or the elevated sugar causing insulin? To rise, the culprit. What about IGF one?
0: Yeah, quite- yeah. The IGF one story, is, you know, that's insulin-like growth factor one, and, and that's certainly, you know, that that's another hormone that that's part of this story. And um, there's there's a lot of nuance to that science, but uh, elevated insulin seems to also increase the IGF one signaling. So I, I sort of lump them together for the sake of simplicity, uh, but I think it does sort of the IGF-1 issue follows the elevated insulin. So I just focus on on the insulin when I talk about it. Um, But, you know, one of the interesting things about, you know, when I started writing this book, I thought the whole damaging effect of sucrose, the sugar, was just by its effect on, on insulin resistance and elevated insulin. But there's emerging evidence that some cancers, colon cancer in particular, can actually consume the fructose directly. And that Fructose actually is uniquely good at driving the Warburg effect. So the case against sugar continues to build even in in the time that I was working on the book.
1: Yeah. Well, a a fascinating book. And we could talk for probably a couple more hours on this, but hopefully everybody has listening has a, 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 you know, a reason to go purchase your book, read this incredible story and how his work from this very difficult, brilliant man is Front and center again, and what that means to us. So basically, Sam, I want to thank you so much. Uh, for your comments here today was wonderful as as well and i want to thank all of you who are listening today so this program will be on the commonwealth club's website soon again that's commonwealthclub.org and now this meeting of the commonwealth club of california commemorating its 118th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned